We are continuing in our sermon series, though, in, in our mission statement. And this is the final uh, sermon as we look at what it means to make disciples who live out the gospel in deed, specifically. We spent the past three weeks looking at what it means to live it out in word, and we said that we can sing it, speak it, evangelize, and today we will conclude our short sermon series on what it means to live out the gospel in deed. So let's have God's word open us up to Matthew chapter 25. We're in the 25th chapter of Matthew, verses 31 to 46. And in light of being in the Word, I do want to encourage us to reach for our pew Bibles or the Bibles that you have. It's going to be page 830, Matthew chapter 25. Your pew Bibles will be page 830. We're going to be going from verse 31 to 46. And when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 25 Again, beginning on verse 31. Now this is the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll be closing out our sermon series on our mission statement. And today the focus will be on living out the gospel in deed, living out the gospel in action. For the past three weeks, we talked about talking the talk, and now we want to look at what does it mean to walk the walk. Now, we can spend an entire year going through this topic, and I know pastors say that very often about almost all topics and all passages, right? I mean, you can spend an entire year doing that. Uh, It's not hyperbole. And and also, uh, when pastors say that, uh, it's actually code for... uh, 
this sermon's going to be a long one. <laughs> but we, we can spend an entire year just going through what does it mean to live out the gospel in action. But today, I, what I want to do is just go through it for one week, and simply I want to lay a foundation for gospel living indeed. And I want to lay this foundation to make sure that we are all building on the same ground and we're all building on the same solid ground. Now, today's passage is vitally important for this topic at hand because of two reasons. First, one of Matthew's biggest concern is that of discipleship. See, Matthew constantly distinguishes between a true disciple and a false disciple throughout his gospel. Over and over again, Matthew shows us what a disciple is and how a disciple ought to live. Now, the second reason why this is of vital importance is because this is actually Jesus' final teaching in Matthew before he goes to the cross, before he dies, before he rises, and before he ascends. And so you can say that this is Jesus' final teaching to his disciples about how they ought to live as disciples in light of the cross. And so what is this, teach, what is this passage teaching? Well, it's teaching simply that his disciples, if I can summarize it, it is that his disciples ought to endure faithfully in love. Endure faithfully in love. Um, there's a uh, professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania by the name of Angela Duckworth. I have a photo for us, and uh, a few years ago, she became a national figure because she was able to provide a somewhat scientific answer or a social scientific answer to the age-old question, what makes a person successful? You know what her answer was? It's not talent. It's not intellect. It's not leadership ability, it's not resources, but it's actually grit. The talent or the trait that motivates passion and perseverance in someone, grit. Uh, these are some well-known lines from her book published in 2016. She writes this, uh, enthusiasm is common, endurance is rare. She writes, success is never final, failure is never fatal, it's courage that counts. I feel like Kobe Bryant would have said this, right? This is real, like, Mamba mentality. She writes this, nobody wants to show you the hours and hours of becoming, they rather show you the highlight of what they've become. And this is in light of the fact that children now, most children or a large percentage of children, when, when you ask them, what is, what is your dream job? Many of them now say, influencer. She writes, the hope that gritty people have has nothing to do with luck and everything to do with getting up again. And finally, grit is about working on something you care about so much that you're willing to stay loyal to it. It's doing what you love, not just falling in love, but staying in love. Angela's work garnered national attention because her thesis flew in the face of today's cultural temperament. The temperament that says we ought to follow our hearts, and the moment we feel as though our hearts are not in it, we have to drop it and quit altogether. 
We live in a cultural temperament where authenticity and genuineness is prized above everything else. And if there is the slightest bit of dissatisfaction, discontentment, the slightest hint that you're just going through the motions, it means that you are being inauthentic and you have to drop everything to find your authentic self again. You see, according to Angela Duckworth, life isn't just about finding your passion, but it's about persevering in and through it. It's not just falling in love, but staying in love. See, it's not that our generation or our children's generation, it's not that they don't have talent or intellect or resources. We have all of that. They have all of that. It's that we lack grit. You know, Matthew 25, the passage in front of us, is communicating an eerily similar message. See, this passage is the climax of Jesus' teaching that starts all the way from chapter 24, known as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus, from that point on to the end, his final teaching is actually about his return. What is going to happen? What What is it going to look like when Jesus returns? And the common thread that runs throughout all of these teachings for two chapters is this. When Jesus returns, will his disciples be in a state of faithful endurance. Now look with me in your Bibles. We've been encouraging everyone to open up their pew Bibles, but if you can look with me uh, in your Bibles, I also have it up in the PowerPoint, but it'll be helpful if you guys turn back to Matthew 24. And this is what Jesus says when he talks about his return. He says this. He describes it in this way, verse 9 to 13. He says, verse 24, They will deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away, and many will betray one another and hate one another. False prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he continues on in verse 31. He says this, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not had been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Or that's actually verse 21. And look with me in verse 30, chapter 24, 30. It says this, After the tribulation, after great trials and difficulties, there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will cry. Verse 42, because of all this, Jesus says, stay awake. You do not know the day of your Lord. As he talks about the the workers inside the house, as, as Christ has given them, tasked them with things to do, and you find that the workers have fallen asleep or they've become lazy or they've simply forgotten, and Jesus says, stay alert. You don't know when Jesus is coming back. And then we have the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, where there are five who have enough oil and five who have forgotten They've become lazy. They were not resourceful. They were not prepared. And so after this parable, Jesus tells them in verses 12 to 13 of chapter 25, he says, Truly I say to you, watch, for you do not know the day or the hour. And then Jesus goes on to the parable of the ten talents. Well, the master gives to his three servants talents. He leaves and he comes back. And to those who have taken the talons and have put it to work, 
The master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And to the one servant who went out and buried it in the ground, he says, you wicked and lazy, lazy, slothful servant. Now we get to the end of this teaching, our passage. What happens? The same thing, the Son of Man returns, and he does the same exact thing. He separates, he divides. That's what he does all throughout this teaching. He separates the sheep from the goat, and what happens? Well, to the sheep, Jesus says, hey, come, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you. Why? Because I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus repeats these exact same words, but in reverse to the goats. And he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Why? Because I was hungry, you did not give me food. I was thirsty, you did not give me a drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick, you did not visit me. I was in prison, and you didn't come to me. And at this point, both sheep and goats are confused. And they're asking, when did we ever do this for you, Jesus? And when did we ever not do this for you, Jesus? And Jesus says this, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You know, on the, past, on the surface, this passage seems to be communicating a very simple message. We might be thinking, okay, Jesus is identifying with the poor. He's identifying with the needy. He's identifying with the sojourner. He's identifying with the sick and those in prison. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to tell us we ought to care for these people. And when we care for these people, that's caring for Jesus. Now, while all of that is true... Yes, while we ought to be those caring for the needy, the sick, and the poor, while all of that is true, that is not the point of this teaching. Remember Matthew 25, this passage comes in the context of Jesus' return. And the question is this, will his disciples faithfully endure amidst the difficulties? Will they faithfully endure amidst the delays? Will they faithfully endure amidst the disappointments? See, when Jesus is talking about people who are hungry, thirsty, when he's talking about people without a home, when he's talking about the sick, when he's talking about those in jail, he's not talking generally about people who are in need. Who is he talking about? He's talking about you and I, his disciples. He's talking about the suffering that we will face as a response to following Jesus. What does he say? As you did to one of these the least of these, my brothers. Remember how this teaching all started back in verse, uh, chapter 24. They will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so if I can summarize this entire teaching, this is what Jesus is saying before he departs to the cross. He says this, following me is going to be difficult. There are going to be lots of persecutions. There are going to be lots of difficulties. It's going to entail suffering. It's going to require sacrifice. Friends, following Jesus means you will look and you will sound different. Your children will 
will look and sound different. We are not supposed to be the typical suburban family or the typical pleasure-seeking young adult. He's saying it will look different. It will be, di- it will be difficult. You will face all sorts of trials and tribulations. And sometimes, like the servants entrusted with the master's house, sometimes it's going to feel dry and mundane, like time is not even passing. Sometimes we're going to be left wondering, is the master even going to come? And sometimes, like the ten bridesmaids, we're going to feel like we're wasting time. We're just waiting around for no reason. Sometimes it's going to feel like we're just standing around to look foolish. Or like the servant who received just one talent, sometimes we are going to be afraid. We are going to be timid. Sometimes we would, we're going to have this feeling of wanting to just bury the good news of the kingdom in the ground because why? I can't handle that responsibility. No, I don't want that responsibility. But when the master returned, when our king returns, when the bridegroom returns, when the Son of Man comes back, the question is this, will you and I be in a state of faithful endurance? Or will we fall away because it's too difficult? Will we have fallen asleep, losing faith? Will we have, for, will we have forgotten our master's command? Three nuggets of truth from this passage in Matthew 25 that I want to draw out in hopes to inspire you, in hopes to challenge you, in hopes to move you to follow Jesus faithfully and enduring in love. The first nugget of truth that we find in this passage is not this. Number one, Jesus is calling you to identify with him. I know when we read this passage and the Olivet Discourse, we might be tempted to think and ask, why does Jesus leave us in such a precarious position? Is Jesus just testing us to see how long we can endure? Of course, the answer is no. Jesus is not testing you. Rather, he is giving to you the great privilege and the great honor of knowing him and becoming like him in every single way. Friends, think about it. Being hungry, being thirsty, being a foreigner, being naked, being sick, being imprisoned, these are not experiences that are foreign to Jesus. They are all experiences that he faced as he faithfully endured. If you recall, he came to this world which was not his own. He came and he faced rejection. When he came, he experienced infanticide, where all the children under the age of two were killed, slaughtered. And Jesus, from the time of his birth, he was a refugee fleeing country to country, region to region. Jesus was fleeing. He was a sojourner. He was a refugee. When he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He endured hunger, yet he remained steadfast under temptation so that he would remain perfect under the law. Our Lord was considered sick, a leper, diseased, because he ministered freely to those who were considered unclean. 
He was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was stripped naked as he went to the cross. And in the final moments of satisfying God's perfect justice and attaining our salvation, Jesus, he cries out, you remember those words, I am thirsty. You see, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, these experiences are not foreign to Jesus. And when he calls us to identify with him, he does so because he wants us to know him more deeply and intimately. John 15 reminds us that if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, our Lord does not call us to anything that he first did not endure and experience for himself first. And he calls us to this not for the sake of suffering in itself, not for the sake of testing us to see how long we can last, but he calls us to this so that we may know him and become like him in every single way, not just in his resurrection, but in his suffering, in his humiliation, and in his death. This is a great privilege that you and I have. You know, when I was young, growing up, my parents had a small business. They had a small business in the rough parts of Brooklyn. Uh, This is before the hipster takeover. Um, This is when Brooklyn was formerly known as gangster paradise. Uh, Now it's known as smoothie paradise. (laughs) But it was a really tough area back then. And my parents had a small uh, business uh, in the rough part of town. And growing up, my parents told me, I don't ever want you to work at the store. If you really want to help me, you know the answer they give you. If you really want to help me, do what? Study. (laughs) That's right. You guys heard that, right? If you really want to help me, just study. I recall my mom, when she would go pick up my dad uh, with me, she would have me wait in the car because she didn't want to expose me to that environment. She didn't want me to see what they were going through. But as I got older, there was a complete 180 in their approach. They asked me to come to work. No, they dragged me to work. On the weekends, on the holidays, the summer months, the winter days. And they did this not because they needed help, although free labor is always good, but they did this because they wanted me to see and experience their life. See, working at the store long hours in the cold winters, we got to experience all sorts of things, experiencing racism, the struggles of the immigrant life. And as I struggled and experienced these things, I grew in my knowledge of my parents. And I remember we shared so many heartfelt moments together in the car as we went to and fro when we shared or experienced things such as burglary, theft, we experienced 9-11 together. And in those moments, as we suffered together, there was solidarity. See, friends, the call to identify with Christ is actually a joyous and a glorious call that's given as a privilege to you and I. As 1 Peter 4 tells us, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, Christ calls us to identify with him in all of his weakness, in all of his humiliation, in all of his suffering, so that we may know him more. The second nugget of truth is that Jesus, we not only identify with Jesus, but Jesus identifies with us. See, the teaching in Matthew 25 reminds us that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our brokenness, that Jesus, what he does is he draws nears to us. It's not, hey, I did this already. Now it's your turn. No, he says this, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He's saying, in your brokenness, in your suffering, I am with you. I identify with you. He identifies with our lowliness. Have you ever experienced love so strong? Have you ever ever experienced love so deep that you know what this is like, solidarity in suffering? When you see your sick children or when you look upon your aging parents, when you see the suffering of your spouse or your friend, what happens? Your heart grieves so much, your belly churns, and you voluntarily become yoked with that person in his or her pain. You feel that person, and you're in solidarity with that person, and you're saying, what you're going through, I want to go through. I want to take that with you. And Jesus is telling us this, friends. He's saying, in your loneliness in your difficulties and suffering, in your vulnerability and your weak moments, I am with you. Friends, do you see that Christ is in you, that he is with you in those moments? Psychologist Carl Jung uh, once wrote this to his Christian friend. He said this, I admire you Christians because when you see someone who's hungry or thirsty, you see Jesus. When you see someone in prison or in the hospital, you see Jesus. When you see someone who is strange, a stranger, or naked, you see Jesus. But what I don't understand is that you don't see Jesus in your own brokenness. Why are the poor always outside of you? Can't you see that they're also inside of you, in your hunger and in your thirst? that you too are sick, that you too are imprisoned in your own fears or need for honor and power, that you too have strange things inside of you which you do not understand, that you too are also, that you are naked. And can you not see Christ in your own brokenness and sin? Can you not see Christ in your own loneliness and humiliation? Hebrews 4 reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every respect, just as we are, yet without sin. And then the author of Hebrews says this, So let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In our lowliness, in our hunger, in our thirst, in our nakedness and our imprisonment, 
in our feeling of estrangement, Christ reminds us that he is with us, that he stands with us, that he's among us. The third thing that he calls us to do, or the third nugget of truth is this. It's that Christ calls us to identify with each other. See, Matthew 25, the emphasis on his return and what and how he's going to divide, the emphasis is, is on what we will do for each other. This makes sense in the context of suffering, does it not? You see, it's human nature that when things get difficult, we become distant. When people become needy, we start to push them away. When people are weary, we start to withdraw from them. When things become tight, we become more tight-fisted. When troubles come our way, what happens? We start to get into this every man for himself mentality. We have no emotional real estate to care for others. We've experienced this not too long ago, have we not? During the pandemic, during the pandemic there was a toilet paper shortage, and we saw what society comes to. Or a few years ago, with the, or the, uh, the show Squid Games, that show touched a nerve in all of us because it showed what happens when everyone becomes desperate, when everyone becomes needy. It becomes a dog-eat-dog world. It's no coincidence that Jesus mentions this in 24.10, Matthew 24.10. He says this, Many will fall away and they will betray one another. And the love of many will grow cold. Why? Because it's natural when we start to go through suffering, when we start to go through trials and persecution and tribulations, when we start to go through the difficulties of life, what happens? We start to shrink and we start to see each other not as companions but as enemies. We start to see the bowl getting smaller and smaller and we think, I have to eat too. You know, in Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. He's a bit more vivid. He's a bit more uh, graphic and descriptive. He says this, 13, 12, Mark, and brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children would rise against parents and have them put to death. What's going on? Well, following Christ becomes so difficult. And the natural impulse is to what? to throw people under the bus, to look after myself, to withdraw, to turn away, and to say, you know what, I need to take care of myself first. But friends, Jesus is teaching us that faithful endurance means that we faithfully endure together. It's not a race to the end. It's not a race to see how quickly we can get there. It's not a race to see how best we individually can get there, but it's about caring for one another as we faithfully await our master's return Think about this passage in light of Matthew 24, 46, when Jesus says this, Who then is the wise and faithful servant whom his master has set over his house to give them their food at the proper time? What is the servant entrusted with? It's feeding others. Feeding others. 
You see, the Son of Man, our Lord, does not task us with the seemingly mission impossible task. He doesn't tell us to, you know, take pickets and go and march on the street and start protesting. He doesn't tell us to go out into the streets and start proclaiming His coming. He doesn't tell us all to go on overseas missions. He doesn't tell us all to become martyrs and to give up everything for following Him. No, He gives us a simple task. How do you endure faithfully until my return? How do you endure? It's to love one another. It's to care for one another. It's to forgive one another. It's to bear with one another. It's to teach and exhort one another. To those who are hungry, give them food. To those who are thirsty, give them a drink. To those who are naked, give them clothes. To the stranger, welcome them. To the sick, visit them. And to the imprisoned, go to them. He's telling us to faithfully endure together. You know, occasionally my boys would ask me uh, what gift I want for my birthday or for Father's Day or for Christmas. And the key word there is occasionally. <laughs> it's not every birthday. It's, it's, it's every other, and it's like every third Christmas they would say, Hey, Daddy, what do you want? And when they ask, I give them, of course, the same answer. The same answer my parents gave to me. And that is what? I don't need anything. Just take care of each other. We all heard that growing up, right? We, we were becoming just like our parents. But I always say, just be good to each other. Don't buy me a gift. Buy for mommy, you know, and say it's from me. I'd say, take care of each other. Watch out for each other. And I'm being honest here. The best gift that you can give to me is that you care for your brothers. And friends, that is the heart of our Savior. That is the heart of our Lord. It's the care for each other, especially those who are in need, especially those who are suffering, especially those who are enduring the trials and tribulations of following Jesus. So what does it mean, church, to live out the gospel indeed? What does it mean to actually live this out? Well, it means that we identify with Jesus in his suffering. It means that we are strengthened by the truth that Jesus identifies with us in our weakness. And it means that we identify with one another as a community, as a church. Living out the gospel indeed means to faithfully endure. It means to endure together. And the task of enduring is by serving, caring, doing seemingly mundane tasks of watching out for others, caring for others, praying for others, forgiving others. And as Paul tells us in Colossians 3, bearing with one another. And so friends, would you faithfully endure? Would you faithfully endure together? Join me in prayer at this time. Uh, if we could just spend a few minutes uh, just responding in prayer at this time, uh, just reflecting once again on this message. The question is, when Jesus returns, when the Son of Man returns, 
amidst all that's going on, will his disciples, will they faithfully endure? Will they faithfully endure in love together? And once again, this is not uh, this rigid task to test our perseverance, to test our grit, but it is a task that's given to us It's a privilege that's given to us so that we may know Christ more, that we may identify with him, that we may become like him in every single way. So would you spend a few minutes at this time just reflecting, praying? Would you pray for each other as we endure together? If you know anyone particularly going through a difficult season, Would you pray for that person? Would you lift that person up? If you know anyone tired, weak, naked, feeling not accepted, if you know anyone hungry, thirsty, if you know anyone imprisoned, would you draw near to them? May Christ call us to this task together. Let's let's spend a few minutes praying together.